Proverbs chapter 5. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Turn your ear to my words of insight, that you may maintain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge. For the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths wander aimlessly, but she does not know it. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Keep to a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you lose your honor to others and your dignity to one who is cruel. Lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich the house of another. <clears throat> At the end of your life you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. You will say, how I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or turn my ear to my instructors, and I was soon in serious trouble in the assembly of God's people. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares? Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? For your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all your paths. The evil deeds of the wicked ensnare them. The cords of their sins hold them fast. For lack of discipline they will die, led astray by their own great folly. The word of the Lord. Speak to God. You may be seated. Kids are invited to Kids Church with Kelly today. May your fountain be blessed, is what the writer of Proverbs proclaimed for us this morning. The kids will not be learning about Proverbs 5 this morning <laughs> down in uh, Sunday school. Um, Carla, I joked when I asked her to read it, I said, it's really just prep for the summer we get to Song of Songs, because if you thought some of that was awkward, wait until we get to the Song of Songs, where awkwardness shall reign supreme. Um, there was a... The minor side note, at my last church, I attempted to teach it to the youth group, which was not wise. Um, but I, I made them listen to it uh, all the way through from uh, a, an audio Bible I have. And it's Denzel Washington playing the male person and his wife playing the female. And so we listened to it all the way through. And like these kids were pretty regular Sunday school attenders. And they didn't come back for like three weeks, half of them. They were like, no, too far. That's enough. Um, uh, little did they know it would be a beautiful allegory for our, our relationship to God and, and how God loves us. But needless to say, uh, that was an error. So I'll try again in four summers. Um, but this, this, this text for us today, Proverbs 5, and what I, I'm trying to do is walk back. So um, it took me, I joked with a friend who was asking me how Proverbs is going. It took me about two and a half summers to figure out how to preach the Torah uh, we have wisdom literature now, and I'm a little bit wiser, so maybe one and a half summers to figure out how to preach wisdom literature. But what I realized is I was taking off way more 
than I should or could or needed to, and then the sermons would spiral more and more out of control and just get longer <laughs> and longer. And so, um, and not to neglect um, the depth of what can happen there, but I think this Sunday I want to pull it back and just tackle, tackle one of the lectures from the father to the son that makes up Proverbs 5. Um, and incidentally, slowing down around the awkwardness is a good idea, I guess. Um, but this Sunday, we're just going to try and stick with, with the well of, of Proverbs 5 and what that might say to us. But before we start, I wanted to go back to sort of what we have been doing in defining wisdom. Last week, we talked about wisdom as the skilled art of living, the art of skilled living, um, and sort of like as craft. This week, I was reading um, uh, in, in Church Dogmatics, this big theological tome, and he walked through sort of the three sort of words we use for, for wisdom. This is from Latin. Um, now, if you're familiar with church history, a lot of the church history was all done in Latin. So it's not a forgotten word. And then if you're familiar with Jewish history, the Septuagint um, is a very, very important text for them also written in Latin. And so these words, you know, words matter. And so if this was a common word used for wisdom, uh, sapience, am I saying that right, Carla? Okay, I made it up, great. Uh, <laughs> sapience, um, the, uh, uh, it would instruct how you understood it. And this one has this sort of root in taste. Um, it, it's sort of a word for like uh, tasting things. And so what does it mean when we conceive of wisdom as taste and distaste? And how do we train our palates to go after what is wise? rather than what tastes good. If you've watched any of the food documentaries in the past 20 years, they seem to be never ending producing them near the same theme all the time. But one of the things they point out is like a lot of the food that we crave is built sort of just to be craveable, uh, Doritos. Um, maybe that's not you, but we could pick something else. Um, that they, It's built to sort of like hit the sugar, the, the salt, the this, and so you just crave it and you want more. But to want carrots or to want um, robust, healthier foods is a training that we undertake. And I think when we think about how we gain knowledge or how we gain wisdom, there's a way in which we can take um, junk food wisdom or we can take that which sustains longer. We can have the Mountain Dew of wisdom or we can have the wholeness of a good meal of wisdom. And so how do we take our tastes and place them in that spot so that we crave more than the simplest? There's a, and this, is, this shows up um, in what we listen to a lot. I think so much of what we listen to is so laden with cliches and sort of repeated things that we lose any sort of meaning. Um, and that's not to say that there can't be wisdom in cliches or repeated sayings, but we use them in a way to almost turn off our brains. Um, this would be the, um, the Pinteresting of, or, or the Instagramming of wisdom, is that, is that oftentimes we see these quotes completely divorced of context, and they sort of take on a meaning that is not meant for them, and is not embodying sort of the wisdom of which they originally were written in. The second word, this one uh, most of us are familiar with, this is Greek, Sophia. This is a common word for wisdom in the New Testament. Um, and this one seems to imply right orientation in the world. 
This is uh, in a different way of conceiving of wisdom. How do we have our right orientation in a place? One of my favorite things to do when I was in school growing up was um, uh, maps and compasses and all that. Um, and, and one of the things that most of us know about a compass is that if you bring a magnet near to it, it loses its orientation. It spins around crazily um, and it doesn't kite grasp what it is. And, and part of the argument I think with this one is be like proper orientation is having the compass not with magnets near it. If you have a magnet near your compass, you're not going to make it anywhere. Now, if you're really nerdy, you can even attune it to true north. Um, but that's also a sign you have no friends in high school like I did. Um, I had friends. They, they like maps too. Um, you can attune it to true north. But, but to find orientation in the world, and there's so much that wants to pull us from our proper orientations. So much that pulls us from wisdom in this way. The, the world we walk through is full of magnets that will make us spin out of control. We see that in the passage today with lust and adultery. There are ways in which we begin to question where we were. We talked about Psalm 1 a couple weeks ago, how you, how you go from walking with the scoffers to... to they're conversing with them, to walking with them, to sitting with them. And that movement takes place in weird ways. The magnet shows up and you notice it as you talk to it. But by the time you're sitting with it, you didn't know how you got there or what happened along the way. This is the Hebrew word um, for wisdom, chokmah. That one, Carla, right? Chokmah? Ha-chokmah. I always, the C-H just messes me up, chokmah. Um, now, as we talked about with the last banner that Chris made, right to left on this one, not left to right. Um, Hebrew goes the other direction. Um, hakma. Um, and this wisdom, it was interesting as I was reading about it this week, implies steadfastness and firmness. And I think about in a world in which everything is soft. And there's almost like we... Um, there's a tendency, I think, almost to think of wisdom as, as the ability to change in certain circumstances. But if you think about the ancient world that, and, and this notion of God, I mean, this is one of the doctrines of God that is often on, on attack in theological circles is this doctrine that God is, is constant. God doesn't change. God is always there. And it, and it seems like where there's biblical evidence um, where God changes his mind about destroying the uh, city of Nineveh or uh, God changed his mind in negotiations with Abraham over um, Sodom and Gomorrah, um, that God sort of changes. And yet the, the wisdom of the church always, in Judaism, has always tried to maintain sort of a firmness to God. And, and it's easy to think about this and why that's important in one way is that a God who changes his minds is very temperamental. How do you trust in that? And so here with, with Hokmah, we're talking about how um, God is wise too. God is described as a wise one. And it's in this firmness that we gain trust. Now one of the problems with um, children's development, uh, uh, child psychology, is it can be the complete inconsistency of parents can do incredible damage to children. Often this comes around um, addictive substances, but it can also come around just through a psychological disorder. Um, and that like, makes it very, very hard to gain proper orientation in the world. Dad, I shot a squirrel. That's great. Uh, let's butcher it up and cook it. Dad, I shot a squirrel. What are you, an idiot? 
Um, and, and those interactions being close to one another can really just destroy a person's psyche over and over again. It's true in marriage. It's true in all our relationships. But what the ancients knew in this way is that to be wise and to be steadfast is to not ride the roller coaster like that. And in particular, you did not want a God who was that way. That would say, okay, well now just sacrifice all your virgins to me. Or, okay, now I'm wiping out your crops because I've grown spiteful for no reason. The ancient Israelites, in, in proclaiming God as wise, proclaimed steadfastness. And I think that for us in our world, it's hard to think of firmness as a good thing. But I'm, I'm, I'm starting to say that that might be an error, to be firm in character, to be somebody who's, who's constant in different realms, to be somebody who knows that, that my, who I am, can't vary from uh, Friday night um, down at the pub to uh, Sunday morning at church, to uh, a critical work meeting where we need to just uh, destroy the competition. That those things sort of need to be more constant than not. And I think this is one of the ways in which we live multi sort of um, personality disorders in the modern world. And it's particularly, I think, uh, uh, critical for young students. I think we see it more in their realms where they're, where they're proclaimed to be excellent, but excellence depends so much on varying different realms. Excellence in sports, you can act in a way that you wouldn't act in excellence in your family. Excellence in your family is in, in a way that you wouldn't act in excellence with your friends. And so they develop sort of this, which realm am I in and how can I act appropriately? But who am I gets pushed to the side. Um, so that's our intro to wisdom this week. This is lecture seven for those keeping score at home. Um, and this is the, the, the lecture on the folly of adultery and the wisdom of marriage. This is today's instruction and today's listen for, lesson from the father to the son. Um, there's a bit of, of a shorter word for this is, is fidelity. What does it mean to live in fidelity to something, to live committed to it? Um, one of the things that has annoyed me, I was talking to Brian and Carla at midweek prayer about my study time during Proverbs, is so many of them take the, the, a chapter like this and they say, it's about not having adultery with the forbidden woman and it's about remaining in marriage. And it's like, okay, yeah, it's about that, but it's probably about so much more than that. Um, there's, there's more to these insights than I think you know, like, well, adultery is bad, my son, so hear my instruction, and being married will, will protect you more. There's truth to that, but there's a, a way in which these things, I think, reach deeper than we're even aware with, aware of. One of, the, one of the ways this has shown up in the modern world, who is a primary dispenser of sort of wisdom, um, is uh, the psychologist sort of thinker Jordan Peterson, and he has this way of taking wisdom sayings and stretching them all the way to the depths of hell so that you go, oh, that means way more than I thought it did. Um, stand up straight with your shoulders back becomes a, a lecture about hierarchy and how we need to be able to be competent in the world and this, that, and the other. And you thought that was what my music teacher used to yell at me when we would sit in the chairs and not sit up straight. S uh, sit up straight with your shoulders back so you can proclaim. And it's, it's like, who wanted me to sing that loud anyways? Um, Point being is I think that like when we look at a te teaching like this uh, one here, I mean this is this woman, this forbidden woman, she walks to hell. Like to say that's only about the temptations of adultery a married person might face, I think is to miss some of the point. 
some of the ways in which we can be pulled astray. Um, we, we used this quote from William James a couple Sundays ago. My experience is what I agree to attend to. Only those items which shape my mind. I, only items which I know to shape my mind. I, I made the point that this is critically hard today because you have to buy uh, silence. You have to buy privacy. So the, the, the best example is the airport. If you go to the airport, there's some sort of horrible version of CNN on while you sit down and try to talk to your friend and eat bad airport food. But if you uh, are lucky enough to belong to the um, uh, clubs of the airlines, it's dead silent in the club rooms. There's no TV blaring. There's no ads everywhere. There's this. And so we live in a world where, like, uh, William James was lucky because he might have been able to shut it off a little bit easier. But if you try to fly today, minus being a member of the Miles Clubs and this, that, and the other, they get you private access. It's noise all the time. But part of what I wanted to say about um, this passage is that we live in this frame of idolatrous hearts. This is a common theme of the Old Testament. This is why it's so disappointing many of the commentators didn't connect this, is, is that, that, that the Israelites are often um, called having idolatrous hearts, chasing after other gods and other peoples and other places, of looking for other places to drink from, the well imagery that comes at the end of this teaching. And, and they don't attend to the one who is God. You see, if this is, is this just about one individual marriage, it's good advice. But if this is about your relationship to the divine, that highest ideal, that one who is calling you into this wisdom, then to turn astray is to walk the path to hell. It's to abandon the ways in which you're supposed to go. This is where, where that word fidelity again sort of comes to mind. It's like, what does it mean to have fidelity to the God who saved us? Now this is, um, if you're fortunate enough or unfortunate enough, to, to do uh, a wedding with me. I don't let you pick your vows because I think you're probably going to mess them up, um, as I would too. Um, but this is from the classical wedding vows. Do you promise to love, comfort her, honor her? Switches to him in, in the other version. This is a question at the beginning. In sickness and in health and forsaking all others to be faithful to her as long as you both shall live. The one phrase that I, I wanted to focus on in pulling this up in our relationship to God is forsaking all others. I can't remember who said it. It might have been the professor at my seminary who said that the, the act of forsaking all others is the murder of everybody else except for the one. You forsake all others in that instance. Now, this professor, I know he said this because this is one of those unhinged moments that you remember for a long time, is that he was talking about how marriage in the forsaking of all others, he said, it's, important, it's more important for children, this is his psycho psychological advice, I trusted him, but you could debate him on this if you wanted, I'm guessing, is it's more important for children to know for most of their life that their parents love each other than that they love them. So his daughter, one morning at breakfast, asked him if... She fell into the water on a boat. They lived on Bangbridge Island, and the mother fell in the water at the boat at the same time. Who would he rescue first? Now, like I said, Dan, this professor, um, uh, is a strange guy. He uh, told his daughter, he said, well, I want you to listen to me clearly. Look at my face. Is first I would rescue your mother, and then I would dry her off. And then I would ask her if she wanted water or if she was hungry. 
And then when she was resituated and fine, then I would look for you. And his daughter was not happy about that. I think she was maybe 8 to 10 at this time. I can't remember the story uh, particularly. But she came back about a couple days later and she said, you know, I thought about that a lot, which of course, if your dad responded in that way to that question, you would think about it a lot. There would no be not thinking about that a lot. Uh, and she said, I, I'm, I'm actually pretty happy with that answer. Because um, uh, this is what this, this is asking, forsaking all others. Like, to say that there's a bond there that can't be trampled by anything else. Like, it was important for her because it, part of what's in that question, who would you answer first, is more, this is like why this proverb study has annoyed, annoyed me in my own study, is like, that's not just a question of like, who's, more, who's a worse swimmer, right? When your kid asks you that about breakfast, this is about where am I in the hierarchy of the relationships here? Can I supplant my mother as the one you would come to first? And now think about it that way. To say, well, of course I'd get you because you can't swim, turns into distortion of the whole thing of what marriage and kids are. It flips the, the relationship pyramid to say that you're now in this spot. That's why, in his unhingedness, this professor answered the question in such a critical way because it's not just a question about in a boat. It's a question about where am I in life? And so what we find, if we think about this in Israel's relationship to God, which is often, not always, equated to a marriage, oftentimes it's parent and child too, but um, their covenant with him, there's this forsaking of all others. So the father's instruction um, today begins with, my son, pay attention to my words, turn your ear to my words of insight that you may maintain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge. Is he's calling him out um, before he gives him this instruction on avoiding the woman of folly into fidelity in a way to this God and to this path and to this way. He's setting him up for a different way of being and relating in the world that um, more hinges on than if he has an affair or not. I don't want anybody to think Matt, soft on affairs. Um, is, is affairs are critically disjunctured because they point to more too. The world becomes falsified in affairs. What you agree to in those vows becomes a lie. Everything is turned upside down. This is why truthful speech is such a, a key component of scripture too, is that if lies begin to take root, everything gets flipped, right? And so uh, affairs individual um, between married copies becomes this destruction of what is. It, it sort of perverts everything that was proclaimed before. But what I think the father is calling the son more out to is this way of maintaining discretion and, and lips and knowledge in his life that's on the path of fidelity and faithfulness to God. Um, we easily go to adultery in our hearts, um, but he is calling him on to a further and wider path. The quote on the back of the bulletin this morning um, I think illuminates some of this is that uh, in, in a reverse way, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God um, from G.K. Chesterton. And, and, and I think what the father is trying to save the son from is going to the path astray is a search for God in a perverted sense. And there's a bit on, on Christianity in particular. Uh, Judaism is, has this too, but Christianity in, in historical sort of um, thought research it's, it's notion of 
sexuality, that's why we read the, the First Corinthians passage that Brian read for us this morning, is that sexuality in Paul's language in the New Testament is this sort of like dynamite of who we are. That if you begin to tame that, you begin to tame the body in ways that you couldn't have seen before. And so Christianity's insistence in the first, second, and third century world on sort of uh, fidelity in marriage, um, uh, chastity and singleness, which was hugely great news for women of the time. Um, uh, the Christian sexual ethic, the normative sexual ethic um, that was adopted in the first three centuries was like um, one of the best developments for ancient women that you could have imagined. Um, it's why the church, uh, some statistics suggest it grew with women a lot more than men in the, in the first three centuries because um, it proclaimed this place. Um, it, so this, this quote is just pointing to that, is that you know, the ways in which we um, go astray is this search for God and the ways in which we can maintain the path away from the brothel is the ways we find our ways towards God, that we end up distorting ourselves. The, there's another teaching. Uh, the part of what I'm trying to say here is that sex is, is, is more than we think it is and it's less than we think it is. So I'm going to throw two more quotes up to probably make this point. Instead of uh, God language really being about sex, Sex is really about God. This is the theologian Sarah Coakley. And what she's doing is, is turning Freud on his head here. If you're familiar with Freud, he thought all of our sort of um, notions were repressed sexuality. Um, which is, anyways, the <laughs> so what for Freud, when we talk about God, we're really just talking about sex. We're just so repressed, um, that's what we're stuck with. And what Coakley correctly sort of plays this, this uh checkmate on Freud and says, no, actually when we talk about sex, we're talking about God. And her point on that is this, this way is that uh, one of the last places of, of transcendence we have left in the world, in, at least in the way that we talk about it, is sexuality. And so sexuality becomes sort of this God to us in a weird way. It's the way in which we fully feel beyond ourselves. And I think that, you know, in Colorado, there's probably two places. It's like the mountain peak sunrise and sex are the two thin places left. Uh, nobody ever talks about sex commonly in public, although, yeah, TV, uh, it happens. Um, uh, but, but there's this transcendence in which, and what, what they're trying to point out here, and what I think Proverbs 5 is trying to point out, is that this um, language about us being bound to another person, about uh, tearing down the relationship in adultery, is actually about our language of pursuing other gods and other ideals, of attending in our experience to other things. Um, I've used this quote from memory before, but here it is uh, here. If God is dead, somebody is going to have to take his place. It will be uh, mega, megalomania or erotomania, the drive for power, the drive for pleasure, the clenched fist or the phallus, Hitler or Hugh Hefner. Uh, this is Malcolm Rugridge. Um, this is a second point I want to make to this in our attending world is sexuality, I think, Muggeridge is making, I think, an interesting point here. But what he's saying about the, the, the drive for power uh, I think it's so vital because what we're finding, I think, in the modern world is, is the drive for sexuality is too weak. The drive for power wins in the end. And, and this is not just both sidesism, um, but if you want to take uh, the far sort of left sort of um, radical sort of protest, um, woke culture in a lack of a better word, 
and, and the, the Trump culture that we saw on January 6th, those two things are mainly about power. Um, they're distortions of what is. And so we move to this false god of politics because sexuality actually can't maintain for that long. It begins to appear empty. And so what we do is then substitute ideology into that place. And ideology is the real problem I'm trying to confront here. You could pick um, multiple different spheres, but it's this ideology of sort of being possessed in that way. And I was talking to uh, the people from the Worldview Academy call me every now and then, which I don't, it's not good for them. Um, because I always tell them that, you know, the problem with turning Christianity into worldview is it just turns it into a rival ideology. It just turns it into this other space. So you take that side, I take this side, let's debate it out. Whereas Christianity can be the freedom from ideology. It's not that we need to live in that ideological sphere of continually contesting everything. And as our world moves more and more towards that insanity, I think it's more and more for the church, and we've used the phrase non-anxious presence, but whatever you want to say to say, how do we have a place of sanity in a world of insanity? How do we nurture that place? And this isn't to say you can't be on either side of whatever modern political spectrum you want to invent, but we do it from a place of like, that's fine, not all-encompassing nature of who I am. And you see that more and more. You, you, you read advice columns. They're like, I have friends who voted for the other person. How can I continue to hang out with them? Not talk about it. Like, um, uh, grow up. Like, be a mature person and accept people disagree with you. Um, uh, politics isn't the end-all, be-all of life. Like, I mean, it could be worse. They could be a Yankees fan. Um, <laughs> you know, there's this, there's this way of which... Um, we boil all these things into this moment, and, and how do we find freedom from that? Um, as we, so that's sort of, I think, a lot of what is going into this passage, is, is, is it's not just about are you staying with your marriage partner, or are you um, staying with the forbidden woman, the strange woman, different translation, the adulterous woman. Are you falling for those words? And now, what I, I find interesting about this woman is that she is all lips and all feet, um, uh, which in the modern world might mean something. Um, but in the ancient world, that would mean she's all words. She speaks. She pulls your attention away by speaking to you. Feet... Um, not what it would mean in the modern world, but in the ancient world, the path that she walks you on. And Proverbs, to this point, has been laden with paths. Are you going to be on the right path or the wrong path, the wise path, the path of folly? Um, and what she proclaims, what she entices with, is these words, and I think, going back to words matter at the beginning, is that we, in my experiences of dysfunction in my life, Many of them start with words. If you're thinking about, um, if you think about uh, going someplace when you're in eighth grade, and along the way, it's a place other kids have been to, they begin to describe the disorder that's there. And at first you're like, that doesn't sound good. Most people. Um, but then they begin to describe it in a way, no, it's actually great. And nobody knows about it. It's secret, which is like, well, you're telling me, so it's not that secret. Um, but then the words begin to describe the path of folly. 
like we, we get enticed into these worlds of sin and entrapment, I think oftentimes in words long before our bodies are in that place. We hear about them. They echo to us. They sort of radiate on the path of life, the alternative words. And what that does then is it sets us on the path. Now, one of the things that, that, that it's described as is, is that this woman, um, her path uh, goes all the way to hell. It goes to Sheol. She goes to that place. And what I loved about Psalm 30 this morning is it proclaims that we look to God and God rescues us from that place. Um, I think that that's worth remembering is that as you walk this path, you turn and God rescues this from this place. The son uh, has a choice between wild living or remaining in the father's house. And you see this in the prodigal son story, although the, the remaining in the father's house has its own tension to it. But I do think it's worth noting that, that um, when the younger son leaves the house to go off to wild living, which is mainly... Uh, in that context, murder, sex, lying, cheating, all this. When he, I mean, we read wild living as like, he went to college and it's like, eh. in the ancient world, if you describe something as wild living, it was much worse than, well, it depends on what college you went to, I guess. But um, uh, if you went to CSU like David, your host. Um, but uh, the place of wild living. Um, but uh, he leaves to go off for wild living and the father lets him. Whereas the son who leaves the house in self-righteousness, the father goes out and pleads with him. And one of the things that that, uh, that I thought of as we were going through this is the best cure for sinful life, it seems to be saying, is a sinful life. Because it shows the emptiness. It shows that that doesn't fill. And there's a point at which I think Proverbs and other books point out that that becomes a fire that you cannot put out. There's a point where that becomes too bad. Uh, you, you get entrapped in it. But what I think that that story paired with this text points out perhaps more helpfully is self-righteousness is a road that's a lot harder to walk back from. You leave because you think that the, the party um, is being ill-thrown for people you didn't think should be there. The father goes out and pleads with you to come back in. It's an interesting note in that story that he doesn't plead with the the son who leads to go off to sin. And so this first half of this passage, we've been going around it, um, sort of portrays this after the father introduced it, is is that this is one of the temptations. Her tongue is as sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. That this is one of the paths that we have before this. And yet he also raises up, and this is the first time in Proverbs, the faithful wife. The one who can, um, where sexuality is properly expressed, which is, again, one of these things we miss is that Christianity doesn't deny that you should have pleasure in life. It says that there are places in which pleasure should be. Um, Pleasure isn't found in adultery or lust. It's found in the covenant relationship of husband and wife. And that's suggestive of of a very important point there. Um, It's not anti-pleasure, but this is the place we find pleasure. Drink from your own system, running water from your own well. Should springs, should your springs overflow into the streets, your streams of water into the public squares? Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. Again, it's about marriage, but it's about everything else as well. Let your cistern 
uh, drink water from your own system. Don't pour this out into the streets, but it's made for you. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. He's calling them into this covenanted place to be in that way. And in contrast to her, she walks the right path. She guards the way. There's this um, disintegration that happens with the forbidden woman. The, the person sort of becomes disintegration. He loses his health. He loses his wealth. He loses all these things if you go through that first half. Um, and one of the things that I think we miss is that we, we are to take ourselves as seriously as God takes us. So much of the path to folly is instructed by that we don't take ourselves seriously as God takes us. Seldom do we start down the path of adultery in malice at the first step. Seldom do we start down the path of sinfulness and leaving with murder on our hearts at the beginning. And yet it's a path that when we're drawn into, we continue down it. Because of a lack of seriousness, we take ourselves with. Whereas this other woman, the, the woman who, um, the faithful wife, uh, exists in a different way. Um, the, the, the husband is not called to be astray, but called into fidelity, not with strangers or with other, but with this faithful one. And so it is with us, I think, to find ourselves in faithfulness to God and not in distraction in the world. Um, just trying to think of one last quote on sexuality and then we'll end with something else in this cult of liberated sexuality free of courtesy ceremony responsibility and respect dependent on litigation and expert advice there is much that is human uh, there is much that is human, sad to say, but there's no sense or sanity. Trying to draw the line where we are trying to draw it between carelessness and brutality is like insisting that falling is flying until you hit the ground and then tr trying to outlaw hitting the ground. This is Wendell Berry. Um, and what he's suggesting here is that in our sort of culture of sexuality in which it's transcendence, the ultimate good, this, that, and the other, and yet any... Um, crossing of the line around um, probably just the word consent is, is akin to the worst sin you could ever commit is a recipe for disaster. That, that sexuality has been freed to be practiced in all these sort of consensual relationships that are only really based on um, does the person regret it. At the same time, um, trying to maintain that it is sacred having a purical, un puritanical understanding, and I'm using that in a fair, good way, I'm not trying to criticize, that, that people are individual and holy and good, maintaining both those at the same time is a recipe for disaster. And so to act like we live in a disordered sexual age um, is to just look at our messaging, and it's the most obvious thing you could ever think of, that we have this heightened notion of sexuality being everything, being able to be practiced freely, and that it is, it is still sacred in some ways in which, in which we want to defend it against certain encroachments. And, and this carelessness and brutality is like insisting that falling is flying until you hit the ground and then trying to outlaw hitting the ground. Um, this is part of the tension we live in. And again, this quote, um, expanded beyond sexuality, is important too. Carelessness and brutality um, names the modern condition, I think, in so many different ways. 
back to ideology, the way in which we're enticed into other things. They come with a carelessness and brutality about them. Um, there's a, I don't know if anybody else has noticed, the, the certain number of celebrities that can be forgiven for, for something that would get somebody else canceled goes back and forth nonstop, and that suggests carelessness and brutality in itself. Like, you can, you can get away with it if you're of this persuasion, but if you're not of this persuasion. And again, I'm not trying to make this into who should get away with it or who shouldn't, but there's, it's peak sin, but if it's this person or that person, it's also forgivable, but it's not forgivable for anybody else. And God forbid, or God help us all, none of us are celebrities. And so we live on the brutality side of that and less on the carelessness of its side. If you or I were able to make some of these errors, it would not be, well, Matt is fine because you know he has this certain status power and can be this persuasion. It would just be brutality to the end. Uh, connected to Barry's quote, connected to, to cancel culture, connected to all that. And so the thing I wanted to end with is this notion of the fear of the Lord, which is our theme for probably this whole series, is that what the Father's instructing the sin in son in is this path of the fear of the Lord. It takes more to walk this path, to be instructed in this way, to go along this way. This, uh, this acronym for how we end up in sin, bored, lonely, anger, stressed, tired, blast, um, you need this to combat in the modern world the temptations of bored, lonely, angry, stressed, tired. You need to be involved and need to have a sense of that there is something greater, there is more beyond this. It's not just the momentary concerns of life, but I'm drawn into a greater mystery, and the best words I think we have for that in wisdom is this is the fear of the Lord. Taking ourselves as seriously as God takes us ourselves. The end of this passage is about how sinfulness sort of gets its own you don't need to work about evening it out. That will just happen. The fear of the Lord, if we keep that before us, can save us from idolatry, can save us from idolatry, adultery, and free us to walk the path of life, that our cisterns may be blessed. Let us pray. God, you have given us and called us into life. You have placed us on this earth and on this path to walk in wisdom, to be a witness to your realm. We ask that you may draw us away from the forbidden paths, from the adultery which covers the modern world. And like the psalmist, as we find ourselves at the pits of Sheol, near the depths of hell, we look to you and you rescue us. God of hope and God of life, God our Father, rescue us today. Bestow your spirit upon us to guide us into fruitful living. And may we find our feet drawn to the faithful wife the one who protects our paths and ways and leads us away from disintegration, but brings us into life. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.